Today in a special episode, we'll be interviewing adolescent medicine physician, Dr. Megan Harrison, about the recent spike in eating disorder cases during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Yes, uh, in fact, I recently got my medical degree in laughter. Okay, I'm not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what we normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. However, today is a special episode. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Megan Harrison an adolescent health physician and associate professor at CHEO, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Canada. She is also my wife. Megan, uh, welcome to the show. And I believe you picked up Asif from a shelter. <laughs> Is that true? That's the rumor. But we're, that, that's not something we're talking about today, though. You let that go. It's not, but it could be. That's a separate no, no. episode. No, no. All right. Okay. So what we wanted to talk about today was, in fact, eating disorders amongst the young. And I, this is an interesting thing. You know, sometimes you you say something and then a day later, it's everywhere. And you're like, oh, if I just kept my mouth shut, I would have learned the answer to that question just momentarily. Or maybe your mind is just more clued into something. And I just literally was wondering out loud about eating disorders. And I was remembering in high school a long time ago how it was something spoken about in the shadows. And it was like, you know, Kim has a has anorexia. And it was all the guys, some of the girls would talk about it. Nobody really knew what it meant. They would mix up anorexia with bulimia and it was something that was never spoken about out loud. The people who had it never confirmed it. It was just whispers. And I said to us, if I was like, I wonder if, is that something that still exists? And he told me that that is a, a large part of your practice is in fact eating disorders. And sure enough, the next day, CBC had a show, a podcast all about eating disorders and how prevalent they are. Uh, I do a parenting panel with, a, with a, a, a psychotherapist, a registered psychotherapist. She was talking about eating disorders. Like, oh, well, I made myself sound stupid in front of Asif. Again. <laughs> Not new, exactly. So so why don't you tell, uh, you know, people like myself and, and so many others, uh, what is anorexia, what is bulimia, and what are, I, I guess, eating disorders in general? There's going to be a long pause because that's a very, very, it's not a hard question for me, but it's a long question. I guess you mentioned anorexia and bulimia, but there are so many, actually, there's so many eating disorders. I just want to go back to something you said too, actually, that it's a large part of my practice. It is. And I guess one of the things that's important to know about the reason that it is, because in adolescent health, we do a lot of different things with teenagers, we look after a lot of different sort of parts of their health care. So sexual health, like all sorts of stuff. But the one thing that we see that lands people in the hospital is eating disorders. So to underscore the fact that they're very, very, very medically serious things. And that's why anybody who works in adolescent health, if you work in a hospital setting, a lot of your practice is going to be eating disorders, whether you want to want it to be or not. And I do want it to be, but, but whether that's something that you are, are interested in or not, it's going to be because in the realm of adolescent health, it's eating disorders that, that land people in the hospital. 
And sort of on that note, can I ask you, were you prepared for that when you were in med school? Did you know that that was going to be a, a significant part? Or I'm just asking because you said whether you wanted or not, were you prepared for this? Not in medical school, but probably in residency, I, I would have been a bit more prepared. It became clear early on. But you got to know about me that I don't really prepare for a lot of things. I fly by the seat of my pants. No, sure. You married Asif. We understand. You weren't thinking the whole thing through. <laughs> you don't think things through. Yes, no, absolutely. but I, I do think things through. But I also I also go with the flow, right? So I knew that I wanted to see adolescents, teenagers, and whatever it is that they need, that is what I will learn about and try to provide, really. So then that sort of you know, that's the thing that prepared me. It's really the patients and kind of what they need. Going back to anorexia and bulimia, there, there's anorexia nervosa, restricting subtype. There's anorexia nervosa, binge purge subtype. There's all sorts of subheadings to the two that you mentioned. And then there's other ones like there's binge eating disorder. There's all sorts of eating disorders. I guess the bottom line is we live, I think, in a weight obsessed world and there's a lot of weight stigma around. There's a lot of environmental factors, I think, that play a role along with someone's personality and someone's kind of genetic predisposition. But there's so many. So, you know, Megan, I think we're starting to dive into this. So I I think I'm wondering at a more base level, like how does this all occur? Like, why do they occur? And then why do you get all these different kinds of types? Like, is there, is there a kind of underlying issue or? If we're talking about full-blown psychiatric disorders, which eating disorders are, they're in what's called the Diagnostic Book for Psychiatry, and these are in that. So there's a, a list of eating disorders that are that fit within the psychiatric disorder. If we're talking about those, there's sort of a complex way that they may kind of arrive for somebody. And then there's all sorts of subclinical eating disorders that may not go to the realm of a psychiatric illness, but they're interfering in someone's life a little bit, and it's still a problem. Those things maybe have different predisposing factors. So if, if we think about eating disorders, the ones that maybe you're thinking about, like anorexia nervosa, for example, and bulimia nervosa, I'll, I'll loop that one in, like the, the ones that are kind of the most commonly known they occur kind of, it's almost like a perfect storm. I hate using the term perfect storm because it's a horrible thing. So it's not perfect in any way, but there's all sorts of things that go together. So you have a youth uh, or a child who across the board, these kids and and teens have low self-esteem. So that's something that's kind of linked amongst all of them. So it's a a feeling of not good enough. So where does that feeling of not good enough come from? Well, that's it could be a whole bunch of things that could be that person's personality or their their predisposition. They, they, they um, just don't feel good enough. It could be some triggers that have caused them to not feel good enough. So you have that base. Then you might have somebody that has a predisposition genetically to develop an eating disorder, just like other medical conditions or psychiatric conditions. For example, if depression runs in someone's family, then an offspring might be more likely to develop depression. Same thing as eating disorders. If eating disorders run through someone's family, family, genetically, someone's probably more at risk, as well as something called OCD. So obsessive compulsive disorder, if that runs in the family and anxiety, those things kind of increase someone's risk for development of an eating disorder. So you've got this kind of person who doesn't feel good enough, who may have a genetic predisposition for something, then there's usually some sort of trigger. And it might be a trigger that for you or me would mean nothing, but for them means everything. So it might be a teacher was mean 
or there was a message said to them, or there was just like, there was a trigger that they couldn't handle. That's not meant to be like someone else could handle it and someone else couldn't. It just means that all of our triggers like could be an awful trigger, like the death of a parent, but it may not be something that someone else who's got a lot of self-esteem, who's not genetically predisposed to this would not find to be a trigger at all. I think we, I think we understand that on this show. There are times when Asif will say things to me quite mean, and I'm immediately drawn to ice cream. Is that, <laughs> that is exactly kind it. Of that kind of thing, you, right? you, Yes, we can unpack that at some point. We'll just get Asif to log off, okay? Yeah, you go, and I'll get my rum and raisin, and we'll just... <laughs> rum and raisin? Oh, we do like have a lot to talk about. Oh rum gosh. and raisin. Oh <laughs> the boy. worst choice of ice cream that exists. I, I've never had it in my life. So let me finish, like, finish that a bit, because it's important, this part. So then you have somebody who doesn't feel good at all, who's genetically predisposed, who's had a trigger, who has this awful, awful feeling, and they need to get rid of that awful feeling, and they don't know how to cope. And so somebody who might have a lot of coping skills or a lot of resilience might not then develop an eating disorder. Somebody else, this is a journey, right? So then what do I do? Uh, and it's not conscious like this, but what ends up happening is they can focus on something like exercise or food. That is something that they can turn their attention to and focus on it. So let's say I start dieting and then it's sort of almost a feeling of productivity, a feeling of doing something good. And we all want to have that feeling, right? And if you're a kid or an adolescent who's not felt that in a very long time, has never felt good, all of a sudden they feel kind of good. They feel like, okay, I've got myself to, you know, 130 pounds. Maybe I could get to 100 and 25 and then you see the number and that's a feeling of accomplishment it's like a productivity can i just jump in there for a second with a question i noticed you said a number of words and i thought you were going to say this word but you didn't which is the word control i wonder is it sometimes that there's so little some people can control in their life that your own food consumption is the one thing you can be in control of or or did you did you choose to not say that word for a reason well, I think in general, that's a good concept because I think that that's true. But I think the important thing is that it's not conscious. So it's not a kid or an adolescent who said, I have no control over my life. I have no control over my feelings. I am going to turn to this food that I can control. So none of them, like they don't think in that way. So then when we think, oh, this is about control, they're kind of like, no, it's not. Like you don't have any idea what you're talking about. So in the big scheme, it's about feelings. So it's not about food. It's not about exercise. It's slightly about their body image, I'll say, but it's mostly about feelings. So yes, they want to have control over that feeling, but really they just want to feel better. And the reason I say it that way too, is it kind of increases the empathy people have for those who are kind of struggling with an eating disorder. Because it's often thought, oh, they just want control or it's easy. They just need to not do what they're doing and eat normally and then do something else. It's really not like that. It's, it's an awful feeling. And so all of a sudden they have this feeling of feeling better and it's, it's almost impossible to ask them to go back to not feeling better. Right. Right. Now we've been talking, so l let me continue on the path of saying all the wrong things and Good. thinking the wrong things, because I think that, you know, and I do that uh, as a public service to all the people out there who think the way I do. You're um, such a good person. I give, I give, I give so much, <laughs> but I think because you two are so, immersed in this world, you may not be aware of how ignorant so many of us are of these, these very issues, which is why we're having this conversation. And I think we've been talking about they, they, and them, but, but I, I wanted to, you know, dig into the ignorance, my own ignorance a little bit more and tell you that my 
preconceived notions from my own experiences in high school with you know my classmates and then just from years of after school specials and media and whatever you well, my understanding has always been uh, or I wish I should say that my my preconceived notions are you are talking about white females teenagers typically financially well off I'm sure that's not correct. And I wanted to know, you know, what ages do you see? And is it mainly girls? And, and, and who is this demographic that's affected by eating disorders most? Well, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Yes. You are partly right. Woo! How about that? So that that is true. Like, so, of course, eating okay. disorders do occur in white people who identify as a female who are of the higher socioeconomic status. Like, definitely, that's true that that occurs and that's common. But and that's maybe what was actually taught in medical school a, a long time ago about that. That's the demographic you need to be screening for eating disorders in. Right, And that's where I learned um, it when I was in medical yeah, school you, in the right, first few years. Of course. Yeah. So that's what. So you are correct. Yeah. In that textbook you wrote about it, that's true. You're right. Not a real doctor. Not a real doctor. Um, so that's true, except for we know a lot more now in that it, it doesn't just affect white people, of course. I, I mean, we can go on about racism in the medical system, but it exists in every facet and it certainly does in the field of eating disorder research. So if you're researching just one population, then that's all you're finding out about, right? So I think we understand a lot more now that it exists in different variations and, and different types in males, females, the transgender, it exists across the continuum. And you know, there's very interesting, those who identify as transgender, there's a big link there with body image, right? So somebody who ha has been, I guess you, you could say their natal gender or their, their sex is female, but they identify as male. As they grow up, they will get breasts or they'll develop, they'll gain weight. They don't want to do that. They don't want to have a menstrual period because it's extremely distressing. So then that population is, is at risk for eating disorders because eating disorders would change somebody's body shape. And I will say make someone very, very unwell. So please, nobody do this who's listening to this. But it takes away someone's menstrual period, often things like that. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> There's lots. So they, they happen in males. They happen in females. They happen in those who I identify with a different gender than that of which they were born. And it happens in all races, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, like everywhere. It's all over the place. And the, the triggers and the predisposition may be different a little bit just because people's experiences are different, but they're everywhere. I would tell you that the average age is usually kind of your uh, 15, 16. 16 year olds, like that's sort of a 15, 16, 17 year old is a peak. And then later in the mid 20s, often associated with people going to college or university, like that sort of demographic. But again, that research is done in, in mostly white females. So that's their history. And then if you look at kind of, I guess, what, what I'm seeing now, it would not be odd at all for us to have 12-year-olds. In fact, we have lots of 12-year-olds in our in our practice. So probably 12, and I, I see 12 up until 18. We've had a few nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds. So getting younger and younger for sure, that would still be a bit abnormal, I would say, but younger and younger. I have to go back for a second if I can, because if you can believe this, I have not finished talking to you about the development of an eating disorder. 
So you have that person who's predisposed genetically, all of the things I talked about and that have don't feel good enough. Then they've somehow come across dieting or they somehow decided they were going to start running to just feel better. And it all starts with usually with this well-intended thing to be healthy or well-intended to just do something good with their time, whatever. And as you lose weight, you lose weight in your brain. So this is this is a really important part. So this is how I explain it to the patients and their families, actually. When you lose weight, you lose weight where you can see it, maybe in, in when you look in the mirror, but you lose weight where you can't see it. And it's around your brain and your heart and your bones and your organs. And that's that's how someone develops the psychiatric part of an eating disorder because as they lose weight, their brain changes. So their brain chemistry changes, everything changes. And so all of a sudden, there's a complete distortion distortion about what normal eating is, even though they started with just dieting, as they starve, they have a complete different pair of glasses on. They look at themselves and they see themselves quite differently than we do. And then it becomes this extreme fear of gaining weight, a complete sort of distortion of how they would see food, exercise their bodies. And it's very difficult to treat at that point. We all know people who were like, let's say, 300 pounds and change their life around through a significant change in diet and exercise and eating pain. And they go down sometimes a third in weight, right? They're down to 200, 215. Are they at risk of that as well? Or is this specific to uh, eating disorders? I am so happy you asked that question. Yes, they are at risk. So we see a lot of adolescents who maybe are living in bigger bodies and we have these like growth curves, which will say, okay, let's say their weight has always been sort of at the higher end of that growth curve following along. And they present to the emergency department at a weight that everyone would say is normal and they look fine. They look well, there's nothing wrong. And you talk to them and there's so much wrong (laughs) and their heart rates are low, all sorts of stuff. So absolutely like losing a hundred pounds in a, well, probably relatively short period of time is going to affect your body inside as well. So it has to do with how it's being done and the length of time. So I'm not a weight loss expert. I'm the opposite. (laughs) So I'm not going to, I don't really know exactly the best way to lose weight because I strongly feel that you need to sort of focus on a healthy relationship with food and exercise. And I think that's what most of weight loss people would say too, is that if you're restricting your intake to an abnormal amount, that is going to lead to medical complications. There was this interesting study done, maybe the ethics are kind of questionable, but it's called the Minnesota Starvation Study. And I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It sounds questionable right yeah, out of the gate. The Just name study. alone sounds... I'm not sure the title alone would have been approved. Mm. So they starved the state of Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. The Minnesota Starvation <laughs> Study. No, it's it was done in the 1940s and kind of at war times. And it was actually like the idea of it was because unfortunately, many people were, were starving at that time. And so the idea around it was trying to to learn more about the body in a state of starvation and with the intention of trying to know how to help people with starvation and how to refeed and like sort of things like that. We have this data, which is pretty interesting. It was a physiologist, Ansel Keys, and a psychologist, Brozek, I believe was the last name. What they did was they had about 30, I believe, white males. So again, not the usual studies back then only had white males. So we can take that with a grain of salt. But what they did was was follow them and have them basically in a semi-starved state for a certain period of time. And then 
in different groups kind of refed them in different ways and then kind of saw what they did without having like a certain regimen of feeding. So all this sort of data came from it. But the interesting part, which which is actually something we explain to families because it explains a little bit the physiology and science behind what your brain does when it's starved. What they found were during meal times, these people became kind of very, very irritable. They became more possessive of their food. They cut their food in small little pieces. They moved it around the plates to make it look like it was more food than it was. Like just lots of really interesting kind of food behaviors. They also found, of course, a lot of the medical things that we have talked about on this already, like heart rates went down, body temperature went down, all sorts of problems kind of happened physiologically. They also found they were more irritable. They felt more isolated, uh, more anxious. They were more obsessive in general, not just about food, but just in general. So we learned a lot about personality and behavior from that as well, which kind of helps, I think, families understand a little bit more about the parts of their child, which maybe don't make logical sense in terms of the behavior when somebody is in a bit of a starved state. So it was a very interesting study. They saw people all of a sudden shredding their food, like just doing funny things that these people wouldn't have done before. So the the reason that we bring it up with families is, is also because it's sort of like uh, helps explain a little bit if any of us were in a semi-starved state, or I guess I should say if any of us were white males, but regardless, we can say if any of us were in this semi-starved state or starved state, we would act differently around food, we would be more obsessive, we would be more irritable, we would be all these things that they're seeing. Well, yeah. I mean, I appreciate the work done in the 40s in Minnesota, but this is also a study done regularly in my home. When when Papa goes too long without food, he gets very grouchy. And then my kids are like, Papa has a grouch monster. And I'm like, you shut your mouth! Oh <laughs> now, we work it out. But uh, yeah, no, we see that uh, we should be, you know, most of us who have been quote unquote hangry at the very least should be understanding of like what what the what what moods um, follow uh, even even like the semi starvation right yeah but it's yeah it's interesting you know there's something to that I guess is the hangry thing it becomes worse and worse as you're in that state of hangry over a long time and it what helps again families and people understand is that it that's the part where you know we were talking about the development of an eating disorder when starvation clicks in and the brain does that kind of thing it's it's not logical anymore really so then it's it's you don't use logic to kind of pull somebody out of that situation so Megan, I, just, I want to kind of follow up with that so i think a lot of people aren't aware of some of these medical complications you talked about not having your period anymore uh, you talked about these brain changes, and actually it sounds like almost delusions that people have. I don't know if that's how you classify, but it sounds like that to me, and me not knowing very much about this area. The average person does not know that there's an increased risk of mortality, like there's an increased risk of death with eating disorders. So can you talk a bit more about some of those other complications and death? Yeah, I think because it's very different in different people, the medical part isn't talked about. What's talked about really is the emotional part, which is which is good for sure. But yeah, the eating disorders, anorexia nervosa specifically has the highest mortality rate of all psychiatric conditions. So that includes major depressive disorder and illnesses where people might have an increased risk of, of suicide. Eating disorders are the highest mortality risk. If you, depends sort of what references you look at, but all time it would be 
about up to 10%, so 6 to 10%. If you think of pediatric conditions in general, there are not a lot of pediatric conditions that have a 10% mortality rate. Although you'll get another expert on, which can list like 5,000 probably. That's funny. We actually have another expert on right now. Can you bring them in, uh, Asif? Let's see. Well, I'm, we get the a battle of the I'm the other expert, and neurology does not have conditions really like that. Oncology, um, pediatric cancer. Um, so the most common leukemia, thank goodness, does not have that high of a mortality rate. Thank goodness, it's an above 95 survival rate for sure. But we're talking about cancer, right? And so people don't think of eating disorders like they do cancer. And I'm not technically cancer is something to think very seriously about, obviously. But if your child was diagnosed with cancer, and, and God forbid that ever happens. I, I would hope you would drop everything and be there at your child's side all the time and do anything it would take to get your child better. And as physicians, we would do that too. And so that's not necessarily how eating disorders are seen and, and they really need to be because it's a very, very high mortality rate. So mortality, yes. Then the top two causes of death, I should say, in anorexia nervosa are cardiac, so heart-related problems. Because they slow down, the heart rate slows down so much, you suggested? Yep, exactly. So it slows down for sure. Their heart rate slows down and they're at more risk for something called like arrhythmias. So like electrical conduction problems, but also something called heart failure, which just means their heart fails. That's a good name, actually. Heart failure. You know what that means? Their heart fails. If you go to, you know, an adult ICU you might see people there who have had eating disorders for 10, 15 years, and their heart is in failure because it's just been failing for that many years. So the longer somebody has an eating disorder, the higher risk of mortality. There are certain behaviors that would increase someone's risk of mortality too, from a cardiac standpoint. So, so drug use and other things like that. But you can have cardiac problems. You have everything, kidney problems, liver problems, name any organ. I wanted to ask something uh, based on what you said earlier. You were talking about, you were saying, this is what I tell these patients, these kids and their parents. And it just made me think about sort of a day in the life of Dr. Harrison. How do you address this with patients? And if they're a, a certain age, do you not address it with them at all? And do you go directly to the parents? Or is it a thing where, you know, young people come to you directly and say, I think I have an eating disorder? What is what does this often look like? All, like all of the things, all of those things can happen. But I think, I think mostly, by and large, families are appropriately extremely worried about their kids and teenagers. So that's 99% of the time or 99 point whatever percent of the time. If it was just, you know, me thinking about what it probably looks like in my mind, I thought there would be at least 50% resistance from the family where you're explaining, this is what I see in the family's like, no, 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 healthy kid. They just, they, they want to be fit. They enjoy being healthy and that kind of thing. But Well, two things. I mean, those are the people who come to the hospital, right? So I'm not in everybody's home. So there's probably lots, maybe many families who who do think it's just something, a healthy um, sort of thing that started and they don't bring their children to the hospital. And those children and adolescents won't want to come to the hospital because they've all of a sudden found themselves a way to feel good. And we would never 
none of us would want to stop something that that helped us feel good all of a sudden, right? So maybe I'm not seeing all those all those families, right? But I would say the ones who bring bring their children for sure. And and really what they've seen though is their child become like a shell of themselves, like physically, but also mentally. So their kid is more irritable, they're more sad, they're more anxious, they're more irrational. So it can start off as something that parents think, and this isn't a, a, a diss to parents because like, you know, of course you'd think, oh, my child started exercising that's great or or they're not eating as many chips that's that's probably a good thing that's what the tv tells me is a good thing or whatever right so you know, you wouldn't necessarily think anything of it. But then what parents notice is that all of a sudden there's this click and this slippery slope that I was talking about before that all of a sudden the brain changes and it's not their kid. They will describe, this is not my child. This is like a demon. Like, this is not my child. I will sit down, try to help them eat something and they just won't. They'll throw it across the room. They'll scream. They'll swear. This isn't my kid, you know, when it gets to that point and they're medically very unwell, a lot of families are, are very thankful and appreciative for any any sort of help and explanation. And, and by in part, most sort of like are, are very uh, agreeable to all the treatment. I think when you think about subclinical eating disorders, so people who have not landed in hospital, because they don't have physical complaints. So that's that's the thing. Families will bring often their child because of physical complaints or they've started passing out or, or something. And then they'll describe, yes, they're also more anxious and irritable and something else. If someone has, you know, lost some weight and is obsessed and it's affecting their life, but it's not necessarily something that has come to their parents' attention, that will like linger for, for a long time. And that, that may not be something that, that families would know about or we would know about. Do you describe that as a functional eating disorder or is there any term like, you know, like there's functional alcoholics, like it's, yeah, it's alcoholic, but they get so much done every day. So is it really alcoholism? Yeah. Well, we call them subclinical eating disorders okay, because it's, okay. yeah, just because they're not to the clin, they don't tick off all the boxes, but in a sense, like they're kind of living in jail, right? They don't have a normal relationship with food. You just want them to sort of live and thrive. And so it's not something that necessarily you would force somebody into treatment for, I guess. Megan, I just want to go back to what you were saying before, because I understand that the parents, you know, by the time they're seeking treatment, they're often on board with the messaging that you're providing, but what about the messaging that the kids have been hearing and parents have been hearing? I'm thinking about school, you know, we're talking about healthy eating. Everybody talks about junk food. Everybody talks about, you got to get your physical activity every day. And are those messages useful? Are they contributing to this problem? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I think when I was talking about how eating disorders develop, I talked about maybe some triggers there. And so if you're a child who already doesn't feel good and you have a predisposition and you hear in school that there are good foods and bad foods and things are black and they're white, if you're a concrete thinker and a sort of a people pleaser and you want to do everything right, what you do is you cut out all those bad foods. You don't have less of those bad foods. You have zero. And having zero sugar and zero fat and zero things that people give the message to kids all the time are bad, that leads to so many issues and often leads to eating disorders. So we we definitely, I'll tell you, when we hear the stories of kids and teens that come in, they, you know, they'll tell you, we can figure out kind of often that there's been this journey of them not feeling great. There's this predisposition, something's not okay. And then the trigger has been, then I heard in school, X, Y, and Z. 
And then we all go, because we have a form letter now that we send to schools. And I, I'm so careful because there's so many teachers that do this right. So I don't want everybody to think all schools and teachers are wrong because there's a lot of teachers who do this right. But there are some curriculum problems, I would say. And it's definitely a trigger we hear about. And then there's some phys ed classes where people are still getting their weights done in class and then they have to write out what they've been eating for a week. Uh, and if you're somebody who has a predisposition for an eating disorder and you start writing down everything you're eating and counting your calories, well, that's a lovely way to push that along for sure. And, and not to say, obviously, everybody that is in that class is not going to develop an eating disorder. Everybody who hears this black and like that food is bad, this food is good. Everybody's not going to start dieting, but the ones that do, this really pushes that along. So the messages that we hear, I guess, that kids hear, if that makes sense, what they tell us is that they've heard lots of messages at school that, uh, that have triggered things or just in the world. So all of a sudden, I don't know if you guys remember not too long ago, all of a sudden calories showed up on menus everywhere. And that was a really tough one for all of our patients and for kids who again, might have a predisposition to over-focus on things or be a bit obsessive compulsive. Then all of a sudden they just start counting their number. Maybe I should choose that versus this because I heard a higher number is bad and a lower number is good. Took away all of the idea of choosing like, a balanced nutrition, right? Like, you know, like good fats and uh, I don't know, it, it just took away all of that. So that, that was a trigger for a lot of kids as well. That's interesting because it's so at odds with all these sort of various health professionals, personal trainers, yeah. you know, from, from the, uh, the least qualified to the most qualified, there's, there's that conventional wisdom, let's say, about, you know, you need more calories out than in yeah. for weight yep. loss. We burn calorie. And so then, I don't know, I don't, what, what, is, what is the solution to also be sensitive to people with, with, with eating disorders? And I would say people who even aren't prone to develop eating disorders, because who wants to live in a world where you're counting your calories in and calories out? Like it just, our relationship with food has to be about kind of, I don't know, fresh food, wellness, like all the food groups balanced it. If any of us start focusing on that stuff, it takes away, I think a lot of things like the other reason to do physical activity, which we believe in very much, obviously, as adolescent healthcare providers, the reason to be physically active, it is good for people. But the reason it's good is because it's fun and because it's social and because it helps people sleep because it's a good thing for people's mental health because like there's so many benefits to physical activity but the one that would be lovely if people didn't talk about was that it changes your weight because that's not a reason to do physical activity uh, a reason to do physical activity is for all the other health benefits there's lots of foods to eat because of health benefits, right? There's, we know lots of foods that are so good for us and eating dessert is not bad for us. You know, like there's all sorts of messages that we need to kind of undo. I would say also that if you talk to people who, for example, uh, colleagues of mine who work in the childhood obesity clinics, who are that are the clinics are called something else, but they work with kids who are who are overweight and obese and may have medical complications from that. Right. The total other spectrum that they have medical complications and we have that our messages are exactly the same. So their messages are not about weight loss because your body will take you where it's supposed to go 
if you normalize your relationship with food and if you normalize your relationship with physical activity. So the messages are the same, really. So the people who actually work in the field with, with those who are very overweight or obese, trying to help them from a medical standpoint and a physical standpoint, their messages are similar. And it's not about a number. It's not about getting to a number. And it's not about doing this many minutes of exercise this many times. It's about overall changing somebody's view of exercise and, and eating. This is what I was going to say. Yeah. The, the challenge that I immediately see there is that many people depend on the analytical, or, you know, the, the quantitative and the metrics to determine health. So for example, when I was 235, I had a number of things I was prone, you know, first of all, I was technically, not just technically, I was actually obese. Yeah, 235 kilos, you mean, right? 235 pounds and a high BMI, like a BMI was obesity, bordering on morbid obesity. I was like, Jesus Christ, like really getting up there. I lost, when it, come to, it came down to 217, my liver healed, my, you know, my sugars came down, my, there was no, there was never high blood pressure, but anyway, all these different things came to what quote unquote, a normal rate, but also I felt much better. Is that the bottom line? You want to feel better and it, and we don't want to focus as much on you are pre-diabetic as par, as far as your sugar goes, your cholesterol is way too high. Your bad cholesterol is too high. Your blood pressure is, we, do we want to veer away from those those metrics? I'm diving into the world of, of adult medicine and probably of also uh, of things that I'm not necessarily an expert in, but I would tell you the people that I speak to, that's information for the patient to have. Like, of course, they need to know they're pre-diabetic or they need to know their numbers because that's an important part of their health and they put that into context. But we are talking to adults who hopefully have a different brain than a child and an adolescent, right? So these kids are growing and their brains change normally developmentally. So they, you start with a kid who, you know, they're so concrete, they're afraid of monsters under the bed or they don't know what they saw on TV doesn't end up under their bed, right? They don't know what's real. And then it starts to veer a bit and an adolescent's still changing. They don't have an adult brain yet. So they don't have the emotional sturdiness of an adult, hopefully. And they also don't have the biological readiness for some of those concepts. So I don't mean they shouldn't have that information. We tell teenagers all the information they need to know. Like this is your potassium level. This is this, this is this. But if you link it with that for them, it feels like they're, you know, if you tell someone you're pre-diabetic, you tell an adult that they're going to do something maybe a bit differently than, than a child or than someone who's predisposed to anxiety or things like that. I don't know if I'm making that clear, but it's different getting that message as a kid or an adolescent. I guess, Megan, the other thing which which I know just at our hospital, and I think probably across Canada, maybe North America, maybe the world, I don't know, has been this increase in eating disorder diagnosis admissions to hospital during the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you just tell us what, what your experience has been with this? That's been our life or my life for the last while and all of my colleagues across uh, Canada in adolescent medicine and in the UK and in the US. So everywhere, massive, massive increases in the rates of eating disorders in children and adolescents. As an example, uh, at our hospital, we have um, six funded beds, meaning like multidisciplinary 
care funded for eating disorder program with a plus three thing that's happening right now. So six to nine beds. And we have 25 children admitted with eating disorders right now, meaning they cannot leave the hospital because they're medically unwell. So anytime somebody can leave the hospital, obviously we would do that, right? The families would want that as well, but that's the acuity of it right now. And all of my colleagues are seeing the same across Canada for sure. I said before the development of an eating disorder, there's a predisposition often, there's not feeling good. And I'll underscore not feeling good. And so there's something right there that's happening to lots of kids and adolescents. They don't feel good. They don't have their normal outlets. And maybe a trigger is COVID. So a trigger is not being at school and seeing their friends. Or maybe that trigger for them is not being able to do their team sport. Or they're not being able to go see their music teacher, who's like a real huge support for them. And they're not playing piano every week, or I I don't know, like, there's all sorts of, uh, quote, normal things that were taken away, which were probably ways kids coped, and they didn't even know. And we didn't even know parents didn't even know, right? Those are just things they enjoyed. And, and that's been huge. I think kids have have lost all of that. And kids that, you know, it's not, there's only a certain population who, you know, can afford to do team sports or can afford to do music lessons and this and that. And that's where school comes in because that's kind of an all comers, right? Like that's where kids can do clubs or they they just, you know, they can just play at recess. So all those little things that happen like in between classes where people just, I don't know, they just talk about funny things. They laugh their heads off and they go to their next class. That's That's huge. So kids aren't getting any of that and teens aren't getting any of that. So I think... The isolation has been what a lot of teens tell us right now has been the trigger for them. So the the one of the, I don't want to say normal stories, but what we're hearing a lot is when COVID hit, I was bored or I didn't know what to do. I didn't have this. I thought, oh, maybe I'll start exercising or maybe I'll start changing how I'm eating. Or it's in some who already didn't feel great about it. And then it gave them sort of the time to to focus more on that. And they didn't have the distraction of the other stuff. And then they developed from there. So I think the isolation has been huge. I will say the increased time on social media is can only be a problem in, in my mind, too, because... Lots of stuff on, and it's not just TikTok, it's everywhere, right? So lots more time on screen. So lots more times with these kids seeing unfortunate messages about food and bodies and you have to look this way, not that way, all of that sort of stuff. And then again, they're not turning it off because they have to run out because they're meeting up with their friends or they're not, they feel bad about something. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, whatever, I got to go. I'm going to play soccer. They're not able to do that. So they're sitting there with all of those thoughts and all of those things in their brains that are only teenagers still. They're not adult brains, can't filter that stuff out necessarily. And they already don't feel good. You know, it's lots of things, but it's a perfect storm in that way. And maybe the most important question is parents or aunts and uncles or grandparents, people who are listening, who have children in their lives at some level, what can they effectively do about this before it gets to a point where it's hospitalization and and conversations about mortality and 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 a complete change in a human being is a reality what can you do early on if you suspect or what can you do early on to prevent some you know eating disorders and that's the key right we don't want people to get to that point where their brain has shifted or or where things are they're ended up ending up in the hospital right so absolutely like prevention is key and there's a lot of work going on in the field of prevention because it's a bit different for every kid right so it's hard to it's hard to know at a 
big scale what to do in terms of prevention, because like, could you just change the world's thoughts on bodies? Could you just go ahead and do that? As an individual in a family with a child or with an adolescent, and, and physicians and practitioners need to do this too. So it's not just up to families, it's up to people in the healthcare field to do this as well, is not focusing on people's weights. So taking the number out of the equation. As soon as you put a number into it, anything like that, it can only lead to, okay, so that must mean I have to do something about that number. So not talking about your child's weight is would be very important and not commenting on, on their body shape, really. That's something that I, I hope would be easy to do. That's that's not what you're commenting on. Even if it's complimentary, could that be dangerous? Because you're complimenting one thing and then do they realize, oh, now I have to look like this or if I don't look like this, it's not good because I was complimented on something else? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true, right? And and I guess every child is different and each parent probably knows their child better than anybody else. And if you have a really sensitive child, you need to be sensitive to that, I guess. I think that it's okay to have obviously compliment people, but not on their body shape or their weight. So you look really great, I think is there's nothing wrong with that, but their body shape and weight is not something that they can control. It's kind of like they're you don't say, Oh my gosh, your foot size is so big. Like they can't control that. That or do you know what I mean? Like, and it's just like there's all sorts of different breeds of dog, right? You wouldn't expect like a bulldog to look like a poodle or another dog to look like something else. Like, people's shapes are all different. So, their actual shape and their weight, I would steer clear of because people can't control that. If you're worried about your child's behaviors, which which is, is more important, like so if you're worried that they're not eating enough vegetables or you're worried that they're not physically active, there's other ways to go about that than bringing in weight or shape. There's lots of ways to talk about that. Like, oh, you know what, let's go out for a bike ride. Being physically active is so important for uh, helping people sleep. It kind of resets things. Like there's lots of reasons to be physically active that have nothing to do with weight and shape. And there's lots of reasons to add in more vegetables when we're eating that has nothing to do with weight and shape. So I think you can still be worried about your child's in, in, in a way like whatever, but just that body weight and shape, if that could go out of it. And then kind of more importantly, if you could not comment on your own body and shape in a negative way, right? Like, oh, I just ate that piece of cake. I better go do a run. Because now you've got a kid who's concrete, who's like, oh, like you're supposed to run after you have like not they're not going to think exactly that. But if that message is over and over, they're going to think when I eat dessert, I need to go exercise. We have to be careful with how we see our bodies and how we talk about them, too. So, Megan, what do you say to parents who may be feeling some guilt, thinking they may have had some sort of role uh, in their kids developing an eating disorder? Well, I think when first and foremost, like I think it's I'm glad you asked that question because it's really, really important that parents hear families do not cause eating disorders. So that doesn't happen. So families are not to blame. Families have not caused an eating disorder. It's, of course, uh, most like a lot of families feel guilty. And really, we do. A, we really try very hard to kind of lift that guilt. You know, if families really caused eating disorders by saying one thing or doing one thing, I mean, all children would have eating disorders, right? Like we all like it's just not it's not possible for them to be the cause of eating disorders. And I think when we were I was suggesting there also that families can try not to focus on weight, like try to model things, all of that. That's all me kind of giving suggestions around what what helps that doesn't prevent eating disorders, unfortunately. So 
I think families should think of it or try to think of it and practitioners should too, like any other illness. Like if your your child developed some other type of medical illness, families, I mean, sometimes people do feel guilty, but very, I think probably less so, right? Like other things are passed along in families genetically, just like eating disorders can be. And yes, there's triggers for different things, but there's triggers for all sorts of medical illnesses too. So I just say like, just like any other illness, like families aren't to blame and they're not, they're not the cause of it. They're very complicated. And as we just, I mean, it took me what, like, 1,000 minutes there to explain the development of an eating disorder. I kept going back saying, no, 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 I'm not done. And then this can happen. So it's not families at all. And I really, really don't want anybody to think any of these suggestions of how to speak to your child is, you know, because you might cause an eating disorder if you speak in a different way. It's not that at all. It's really trying to work with families in the situation where they're in a situation where their, their child is concerned about weight or is concerned, I don't know what, then these are things that might help in that situation. I wonder if you see the opposite too, where parents might be too hyper alert. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I, I know since it's come on my radar, you know, my wife and I both, like one of our daughters will be like, can I be excused from the table? And they say, why, why, where are you going? What do you, oh, why, yeah. why do you need to be? <laughs> I know. Like, I got homework to do, you weirdo. Okay. All right. But we got our eyes on you. No, it's so hard, right? Because you think as parents, just with everything, not even just like with eating disorders, with everything, you hear all this stuff, you just want to prevent any harm in your child or developing any issues at all. But we can't, right? Like uh, we talk about that in adolescent health all the time. We can't prevent kids from going through these developmental milestones and they're going to be interested in sex at some point. Ali, I'll tell you that, your children at some point, okay? What is this sex you speak of? I myself have never heard of this. So Dr. Megan Harrison, thank you so much for your time today. You're obviously... I don't want to say burden, but you got you got quite a load of things happening. You know, I don't know your personal life. You're married to Asif, and that in, in itself is a burden. But then your work obviously keeps you very, very busy these days in a way that it hasn't, you know, pre-pandemic. So we really thank you for being here and for having so, so, such a sort of encouraging, uplifting tone in your messaging. I think I think people benefit from that as well. Thanks, Megan. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, maybe I'll see you later, Asif. Maybe. All right, Asif, over to you to do your wrap up, say your words and things. Thanks to everybody for supporting the podcast. As usual, you can follow us social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're on everything. We're on YouTube now. Uh, one thing that would really help us out is one thing we're not on Reddit. If you guys are on Reddit podcasts, if you guys are members of that, if you post on Reddit a lot, it would really help us out. If you see any kind of feeds that are related to podcasts, people asking for suggestions, just throw out Dr. Versus Comedian in there. It would be uh, really helpful to us. Thanks again to Dr. Megan Harrison for being on the show. But remember that although I'm a doctor, as is she, neither of us are your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. See ya.